God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again this evening for another opportunity, uh, the privilege to open your word. We ask now that uh, you would minister in our midst, you'd speak, uh, Lord, these things uh, from ancient times, Lord, that you would uh, make them relevant to us in the day and age we live in. Uh, We know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we know that our enemy is still the same enemy uh, as it was in the world uh, thousands of years ago. We pray that uh, you would just uh, illuminate, give us understanding uh, of what we're reading, and Lord, help us to apply it in our lives that we'd walk closer with you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you're taking notes, as I mentioned, this is our part three, but uh, a little different title tonight if you're taking notes, Sin and the Influence of Satan. Sin and the Influence of Satan, uh, Lessons from Ancient Tyre, Part 3, if you will. And we're going to look at the text uh, divided up into uh, three sections tonight. Um, First will be the fruit of pride we want to look at uh, as it relates to the king of Tyre and and what does that have to tell us uh, about pride. And then we'll look at the certainty of destruction. And then we'll look uh, at the past, present, and future of Satan Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about Satan, not just here, but throughout the scriptures. But this is a a pivotal passage in understanding uh, Satan and and some of the origins of uh, the enemy that uh, has deceived so many in the world and and is our constant adversary as the body of Christ. But first, uh, we want to start off um, looking at uh, this sin of pride that uh, really wraps around and envelops uh, the king of Tyre, and it says here in the in the second verse, "Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre." This would be the the ruler uh, over Tyre. Now we know that uh, if you've been with our previous studies, Nebuchadnezzar would come against uh, come against Tyre, and he would never actually get to the island fortress. And then, uh, but later, uh, Alexander the Great would, and he would build that causeway by taking the ruins and piling all the ruins together until uh, he actually advanced out there. Uh, and uh, it appears um, to others, and certainly to me, that this would be more likely that final prince uh, that would be the one killed and, and, and was actually, remember it was uh, Alexander the Great's desire to go and worship in the temple, and, and he was spurned, and they you know, threw his envoys back over the wall dead. And uh, so um, this would be you know, uh, certainly mentioning the fact that the judgment comes there in the center of the sea, uh, very possibly, very likely, uh, perhaps, um, that uh, final prince there. Uh, But regardless, uh, we know that uh, God is addressing the sin of pride here. And if you're taking notes under the fruit of pride, uh, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, uh, you've probably heard this passage many times, six things the Lord hates. Uh, Yes, seven are abomination to him. And what's the first one on the list? A proud look. A proud look. You know, it's interesting that God doesn't just say pride, but God identifies. Those of your parents, uh, you might talk to your kids, don't have a prideful look. You know, the world actually today doesn't even, doesn't even re- a prideful look doesn't even register anymore. But God, it still registers not only that we have pride in the heart, but that kind of smugness that walking with pride, a haughty spirit the Bible talks about. Uh, God despises it. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders wrote this. He said, nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. 
The first and fundamental sin is the, in essence, aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. Pride is a sin of whose presence its victim is least conscious. If we are honest, when we measure ourselves by the life of our Lord, who humbled himself even to death on the cross, we cannot but be overwhelmed by the tawdriness and shabbiness and even the vileness of our hearts. You know, the Lord Jesus is our standard. Once we measure ourselves against him, we can never really be prideful. I talked about on Sunday that, uh, that when we get to heaven, the Bible says that when we are given crowns, we're going to cast them right back at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because the sin of pride will no longer be in us. We will, we will finally know that nothing, we brought nothing to the table. We will finally know that we brought nothing to the table. And it, at that point, because even now, even when we know that intellectually, give yourself a half hour, you'll be back to thinking you're bringing something to the table. By the time you get home tonight, you'll have reformed a little higher standard of one's thinking than we really are. Next to Christ, we're nothing. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. God hates pride. Hates a arrogance, uh, an arrogant spirit, a haughty spirit. Amos 6.8, uh, it says this, The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. You know, palaces invoke wealth. And when the more, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get to heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Why? Because wealth, wealth is one of the things that puffs people up. The more wealth you have, the more successful you are, the more successful you are, the more brilliant you are, the more brilliant you are, the more adored you are. And so we see the progression and God says, I, I hate, the, I abhor the pride of Jacob. See, Israel was supposed to represent God, but Israel decided to represent Israel. They wanted the glory. They wanted to be known for something. Even Solomon, with all of his wealth and fame, you know, early on he had the right attitude. God says, I'll, I'll give you anything, and he, he asked for wisdom. Of course, he got far more than that. He got wealth, he got fame, and he began later to believe himself as opposed to God. And he was actually uh, instrumental in bringing some of the false gods in that would bring uh, ultimately the destruction of Israel. But the, uh, the prince of Tyre here, who's the king, who's the ruler uh, of Tyre, uh, when he sees Tyre finally destroyed, uh, this ruler, he was proud of two primary things. You might have saw it as we read through the text. Um, uh, one is uh, his wealth. He had amassed, you've, in verse 4 it says, you've gained riches for yourself, you've gathered gold, you've gathered silver into your treasuries. Uh, this, this king had acquired great and fantastic amounts of money and wealth, and, and we talked about you know, the, the, just the uh, top of uh, the pyramid that uh, Tyre was among the nations when it came to trading and generating profit and generating money and uh, really just uh, had that Midas touch about being able to turn anything into financial success. And so he had great wealth, uh, but he also uh, had apparently a very high IQ or intellect, very knowledgeable, very intelligent. Now, you'll meet many unsaved people that really are very smart. 
Maybe they scored perfect on their SAT scores, or uh, maybe they, uh, they just are a mathematical genius, or maybe they have kind of the vocabulary that Shakespeare did, you know, and they, they have a, a really high IQ, or they're very intellectual, they're very smart. Uh, of course, you can be very smart and have no real wisdom. True wisdom comes from God. But the, the Bible also sometimes used the word wisdom as it relates. It can, it can mean the spiritual wisdom that can only come from the Lord. But wisdom can also mean what we would call smart, someone who's very smart, very intellectual. You know, the Greeks, they had these philosophers. And you, you know, when you were in school or maybe in college, you studied the likes of Aristotle, and, and uh, they were brilliant men. And some of them uh, had... Some of them we still, in math class, curse to this very day. Why did you come up with this or that kind of thing? But uh, why were you even thinking about what X is or whatever it may be? But uh, all of those things, I mean, they, they did have high intellectual capabilities. They really were given by God uh, brains that really could understand a lot of the things in the earthly realm. And so this, uh, this king, he may have well been very, very smart may have uh, been able to understand science, mathematics, maybe multiple languages, you know, these kind of things. Uh, there was some intelligence there and some, and some high intelligence. And he was uh, very uh, amazed by his own intelligence because uh, in verse 3, you have a tongue-in-cheek statement. It says, behold, you're wiser than Daniel? Question mark. I mean, I, exclamation mark. Uh, wiser than Daniel. Uh, the implication here is, that Daniel, uh, who was in captivity at the exact same time as Ezekiel, and there's some scholars that believe they were actually the same age, uh, but Daniel, remember, he would not only live through the Babylonian Empire, but then he would live into what? The Persian Empire, right? So he would actually uh, be a government official in both great empires, in the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. And not only did he interpret dreams, but uh, his dreams of interpretation clearly went beyond Babylon that at that time in the ancient world, the name Daniel was known. People knew who Dan, that, that uh, this, this guy had. Daniel was actually very, very intelligent as well. And on top of being highly intelligent, he had godly wisdom, kind of like a Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was not only seen to be you know, rather intelligent like a Solomon, but on top of it, unlike Solomon, Daniel and Joseph followed the Lord. So, you know, when you actually have... God's given you a certain amount of knowledge and understanding, and then he pours on top of it uh, the wisdom of the Lord. Daniel uh, had supernaturally heard from the Lord at different times, and that kind of wisdom really wasn't Daniel's anyway, right? I mean, Daniel couldn't interpret dreams. He said himself, the Lord can interpret dreams. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can interpret dreams. But this a particular king, so the name Daniel had circulated in the known world at that time, perhaps well after the Persian Empire, if this goes all the way to Alexander the Great, we're in the Greek uh, Empire at that point, but regardless of when it falls in the timeline, um, this particular uh, king of Tyre believes he has that kind of wisdom, because he believes he's a god. If Daniel was receiving messages from the Lord God, this particular king thinks he is a god. Daniel's receiving wisdom from God. This king believes he is a god. Uh, he thought he was wider than Daniel. No doubt he probably knew of the wealth and fame of Solomon, probably fancied himself 
as all the great rulers, kind of thought of himself as, well, I'm as wealthy as Nebuchadnezzar, I'm as wealthy as Solomon, I'm as wise as Daniel. I really believed uh, in his own abilities. Uh, One of those heads that couldn't get in the room. Uh, Like the pharaohs and the Caesars, he was immensely impressed by his own grandeur, by his own splendor. You know, each individual person, uh, we look in the mirror, you know, the possibility of pride, well, not just the possibility of it, the propensity of pride, I would say, is there all the time in all of us. And, and Satan uses just a handful of little things, and he's used them. They're very time-tested. The same tactics have been, using for, have been working for thousands of years. Uh, three things that, uh, that people get really prideful about. One is who they are. What do I mean by that? Just who they are. Well, people, their looks. You know, if you're really, really good looking here, you've got more to deal with than some of the rest of us do, right? Uh, looks, supermodel, incredibly, you know, just, just physique or whatever it is. People uh, incredibly impressed with their looks. Maybe in some countries, America, this is not as big a thing, although it is if, in certain families, if you're a Rockefeller or a Kennedy Family name. That means a lot in some parts of the world. You can be very, very prideful just about the family you're born into. Just like people can be depressed about the family they're born into. But very, very prideful about the family they're born into. Uh, Titles. Titles that people have. I'm senior vice president. Bow to me. Employment. Who you work for. Certain company names mean a lot. You know, people are impressed by certain names, certain titles. Um, who you're married to. You know, you, someone can be a nobody, then they can marry a celebrity. And all of a sudden, uh, they have a pride that they never had before. Relationships. All kinds of things that people can have pride about who they are. Now, Another one is uh, what you're capable of. Or what you're known for. What you're capable of or what you're known for. This goes back to things like intellect or IQ. People say, that person's brilliant. And you meet people that actually not only are really intelligent, but they believe they're really intelligent. And they want everyone to know it. They start telling you about themselves on a regular basis and and how uh, gifted they are intellectually. Uh, Physical abilities. Uh, There's no doubt that some people are more physically gifted than other people. We're not all going to be in the Summer Olympics next summer, are we? And not just because of age. If I was still 22, I still wouldn't be in the Summer Olympics next summer. Physical abilities, talents. Some people have talents. I mean, you look at some of the, uh, the, great, uh, you know, the great musicians and composers like Mozart. You know, they, they had talents that, that were God-given. Now, whether they, in history, whether people use those talents for the Lord is a different story. Some did some didn't, but talents. People can be incredibly prideful uh, about their talents. And then uh, the third one is what we've accomplished, what people have accomplished. Uh, uh, people take great uh, pride in the fame they've uh, reached, the level of fame. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the top celebrities, it matters to them how many Instagram followers they have, how many Twitter followers they have. And some of them have you know, 30, 40 million uh, wealth. Of course, uh, we mentioned that at the outset. Wealth is, uh, it means everything in, in America. I mean, it shouldn't, but it does. I mean, we know that uh, it's corrupted so many things, but uh, what people are worth 
is what they feel they're worth. Doesn't mean anything to God. Uh, he looks at the widow with very little to give and is more impressed with her, but everybody else is impressed with someone. Uh, can you believe it? Their car is worth 300000 Wealth, fame, what we own, what we control, education. Uh, if it's in the sports world, wins and victories. And not just wins and victories in the sports world, but maybe it's corporate deals or mergers or any kind of, any kind of accomplishments that people look at. Uh, for kings of old, and I believe kings that are coming on the scene in our lifetime, enemies defeated. It's been a while since we've seen kings that matter about uh, invading other countries, but we will see it again. I believe we'll see it in our lifetime. We will see in, in all the ancient times. You go back, all the great kings of the past all measured some of their value and their pride. Did they conquer anybody? Did they take over other nations? It's been a while since we've seen those kind of rulers on the earth, but we know that they're coming, and, and some may be uh, in, uh, you know, in the world right now in, in key positions. But all of these things, um, but all those things fade. Uh, all the things that people are prideful about, you know, God says, uh, you are a man. All these things are going to fade away. Men die. Men die of old age. Women, men and women, I'm talking about mankind here. Um, there was a, a poem I came across and it said this. It says, you may splash all you please as you enter and stir up water galore, but stop and you'll find in a minute it's back where it was before. No matter what kind of splash anyone makes, in the history of the world. It's kind of like if you throw a big boulder in a perfectly calm, calm pond, it will make a little bit of a scene, but after a while, come back a little while later, it'll be flat again, won't it? And it's true that the world moves on just fine without anybody. And say, so, you know, remember when Steve Jobs passed away? I mean, he was the top of the top. Apple was, you know, just, and, and people don't talk about Steve Jobs. You know, there's a movie coming out, I saw some uh, advertisements, a movie coming out and stuff, but people move on, just get right back with their lives, no matter who passes on, the world just keeps on moving, keeps on turning, keeps on spinning. But pride, you can get to the place that uh, you're so in love with yourself, so impressed with yourself, that like this king, this prince of Tyre, your mind becomes warped. He actually believed he was a god. Now, he had a mom and a dad, but he believed he was a god. He believed that, you know, and, and, and this is the problem with false religion. Uh, then you actually have false religions that, you know, the pharaohs, hey, if we take all your stuff and put it in the pyramid with you, you get to take it on to the afterlife. We seal it up. And really, who ended up with most, you know, we, they had later they would have the, tomb, you know, the pyramids were broken into. A lot of it was raided by robbers that would take it away. And even today, some of it's sitting in museums in New York and London and Cairo. None of it made it to the afterlife. But you can get so warped you think you're a god. Matthew Henry said, Men must be made to know that they are but men. The greatest wits, the greatest potentates, the greatest saints are men and not gods. Jesus Christ was both man and God. He's the only man that actually is God. He wasn't a God. He actually is God. Every other man is just a man. There's, all, there's the man God, 
and then there's man. But then there's the pride of man that thinks he is a God or, or can actually rise to this level. And what is the fruit of this? Well, after you lift up yourself and to get to the place that you've never repented of pride, you've never turned and humbled yourself at the feet of Jesus, it's the thing we'll look at second, certainty of destruction. There's a certainty of destruction coming for all those uh, that remain with a heart of pride because you have set, verse 6, your heart as a heart of, God, of a God. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of nations. They shall draw their sword against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit. Of course, we can't throw anybody into the pit, but when a person dies in their sin, they are going to the pit. They are going to Sheol. They are going to hell because that's the place that God has reserved for all those that reject him. And in the midst uh, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. And again, referring to that uh, island fortress uh, that was Tyre. Uh, will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god? Even as uh, the nations are attacking, if, if it's ancient Greece and Alexander the Great attacking, will you still say you're a god? Because um, uh, if you are a god, uh, you should be able to have the power to overcome just human things. But other men will bring you down. Here's the certainty of destruction. Uh, the ruler of Tyre, you know, he perfectly illustrates Proverbs 16, 18. And he's not the only ruler in, in the history of the world. I mean, the Bible has is, is, uh, got plenty of other examples. But in Proverbs 16, 18, it says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, we all have to take real stock of ourselves, don't we? And, and really, is it, are, are we being prideful about anything in our life? Is there anything that we have a haughty spirit about? Because if we do, you know, it doesn't mean that, uh, thankfully for those of us that are saved, uh, God's not going to destroy us, but he will let us skin our face pretty good, won't he? He will let us skin our knees pretty good. Uh, and he will put us in a place that will humble us uh, if we are walking in pride. I mean, it, the, the fall can come to all of us. Um, the rulers of the world, remember back in our previous study last week, they were in shock at the fall of Tyre. You know, they come and they, they lay down their, uh, they lay down their uh, robes and they all come there in verse 16. It says, The princes of the sea will come down from their thrones and lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments. They'll clothe themselves with trembling and sit on the ground and tremble. Every moment be astonished at you. They will take up lamentation. Uh, the rulers of the world uh, would be in shock, in grief, uh, just uh, dumbfounded uh, that this could happen, and it could happen so rapidly. Uh, but pride can bring a person down in, in a very short period of time. People can go from great heights to complete collapse in a short period of time. Uh, their health can fail. Anything uh, God can... Uh, bring anything that he desires uh, against our pride. Pride ruined and, and brought judgment on Satan, and we'll look at that in just a few minutes. Uh, but pride will ruin and bring judgment on us too. Pride can ruin and bring judgment on a church, can it? When a, you know, if, if a church wants to make, you know, even I'm, I'm thankful uh, we get to move to a place that we had nothing to do with it. God opened doors, 
wasn't something we were pursuing. I sent a note to our uh, deacons and elders today saying, uh, I'm excited about a new property and new opportunities and new doors, but we need to be much more excited about the old rugged cross than any new anything. Because God wants us to have our faces down and humble before him. He's not at all impressed with anything that we come up with. You know, there's ministries around the world that, that started out really humble, really loving, really caring about Jesus, really caring about seeing souls saved. Uh, but then they got lifted up. Jesus writes letters to these churches, doesn't he, in the book of Revelation. He started the, you know, the, the church there in Sardis, Laodicea, these churches that uh, really, um, at the end of the day, no longer were humbled and amazed by the work of grace and the work of the cross, but they were just amazed at themselves and had the same pride of the unsaved world. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.6, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. See, the devil, because of sin, because of pride, this is why Satan was condemned eternally. There is no opportunity for Satan to repent <laughs> every now and then. Uh, I think we had someone this year, I think one of the kids asked, can Satan still repent or something like that? Every now and then, and then I, I, I got that question from one of the kids this year, and then I saw the same question posted on a, on a website to some other large church pastor or something like that. I guess it's one of those things kids sometimes wonder. But no, Satan's condemnation is forever. Uh, if a person remains in pride their whole life and never repents, they'll be condemned forever as well. But notice that Paul, in writing to Timothy, uh, is speaking to the believer and it's not a permanent condemnation, but uh, we do really run the risk of walking in pride and God really taking the legs out from under us. And the king of Tyre, it wasn't just his legs taken out from him. It was his entire life, his entire kingdom, all the wealth, everything slain, destroyed, completely forgotten. Because eventually his memory would be forgotten. If it wasn't preserved for us in the word of God, we're not even sure. There's not even a lot in any antiquity, about Tyre. The Bible has probably as much to say as anything. I mean, uh, historians and archaeologists, they still continue to look, look, look for things. But the Bible gives us some of the greatest insights of anything on some of these ancient kingdoms. And why? Because Not because they, you know, sometimes historians they say, well, they couldn't have been that big or we would see a lot of remnants. No. When, when God mentions a nation and there's hardly anything left of it, you know that they really were big. Right? Because the bigger they are, we talked about Sunday, the bigger the pride, the more God brings judgment. Well, let's take a look at this last section. Um, you, you saw, if we were, as we were going through the text, there's a clear uh, movement from talking about this Prince of Tyre to even if someone was reading it and didn't know much about Satan, they might be a confused. What, what is all this? I mean, uh, uh, what is this Garden of Eden stuff and angels and cherub? And all, you know, all, if someone was reading the Bible for the first time, uh, they would probably wonder, what is this transition here? Moreover, the word Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Now we know the king of Tyre was not in the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, but the king of Tyre wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Now, one of the things about when you study the Bible, we've talked about this, but it's always worth um, reiterating and reviewing. Uh, the Bible set, can say multiple things at the exact same time. It can be speaking of more than one thing uh, using the same verse. Uh, it can be speaking at both past, or not both, all three. It can be speaking past, present, and future. Uh, the Bible is multidimensional, because why? Well, God sits outside of time, doesn't he? And he also sees things that are invisible to the physical realm, but are visible where? In the spiritual realm. So you also have the spiritual realm that God will sometimes shed light uh, on as well here. Now notice that the ruler of Tyre in verse 2, go back to verse 2 for just a second. What does it say in verse 2? Son of man say to the prince of Tyre. But then in verse uh, verse 12, son of man take lamentation for who? The king of Tyre. Now, this is actually one of those principles of duality. Uh, The prince of Tyre is also literally the king of Tyre, but the Holy Spirit is doing something here and showing a little nuance that not only is the prince of Tyre the king of Tyre, right? If you would say, go back to uh, John F. Kennedy, and you said, he is the president of the United States, and you also said, he's the prince of Camelot. It would, be, it would be the same person, right? You'd be talking about the same person. But if, in this case, the Lord is, it can be the same person, but also the Lord is saying there's actually a king of Tyre that's in a spiritual realm that's above the prince of Tyre, above the king of Tyre, and that's Satan himself. That a world-dominating empire, or in this case, and Tyre is interesting, they weren't a world-dominating empire, They were a world-dominant economy. They didn't have a massive land grab like Rome did or Greece did or Egypt did or uh, Persia did. They had a massive, successful cash flow economy, and they had alliances and they had their mercenary army, but for the most part, they're kind of an enigma. There's not not really many even ancient and even modern parallels to them. But nevertheless, the pride and the wealth and the success was ultimately, Satan was over it. You ever heard, you know, you've heard people say that, oh, they sold their soul to the devil. And boy, did they get a lot of good earthly reward out of it. Well, Tyre had certainly sold its soul to Satan. And so he's, uh, the transition here uh, is to Satan as the king of Tyre. That it would apply to both the prince of Tyre being the king, but it also applies to Satan being the king over the prince. As if Satan is the one controlling the prince of Tyre, as if he's the marionette. And Satan's doing the positioning here. Those without Christ understand this. All the unsaved people in this world, those without Christ, are subject to the rule of Satan. Matter of fact, whether they feel it, sense it, or even believe in his existence, he is their ruler and their master. How do we know this? The scripture says it. Let me give you a couple of verses. 1 John 5, 19. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now we actually have to endure, and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are really enduring 
the wrath of Satan against the church. So we, it's not that we are immune to his existence. Even Satan tempted who in the wilderness? Jesus, right? Interesting, what did Satan, what was one of the things that Satan offered Jesus? The kingdoms of the world. How could he offer that? Because he controlled them. God had given him for a season of time, God has given Satan authority to kind of manipulate Russia, China, ISIS, right? Wall Street, Hollywood. Do you realize you can think of all the systems, all the isms, all the religions, and Satan has key demonic forces over all of them, running them all. That doesn't mean that people don't make their own decisions. They do. But Satan does supply power, resources, fuel for the fire, if you will, and the ending fire as well. And John chapter 12, verse 31 Listen to this. Now this is the Jesus speaking. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus said that there's a current ruler of this world that he's going to cast out. Guess who that is? It's Satan. The whole world lies in this way. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. When Paul was called, this is what the Lord told him that Paul would be doing. Uh, The Lord told Paul, you are going to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's job was to go set people free from the power of Satan. The whole world's under the sway of the wicked one. He's ruling over this world. And he has people trapped in darkness. Now let's uh, let's look at the past, present, and the future of Satan. A little background on Satan there, and we'll we'll look at a few other things, and there's some other verses that give us some more insight about Satan's role in influencing the world uh, around us. As far as his past, now it says here, uh, you are in Eden, in the garden of God, and the Lord says in the same verse, at the end of verse 13, uh, on the day you were what? Created. Created. Very important. Remember that Satan is a created being. Satan is a created being just like you and me. He has a finite beginning. Now, he'll live forever now in torment once he's cast in the lake of fire. But he's a created being. He's not like God. God has no beginning and no end. No one created God. God created everything. Satan's a created being. And uh, in Job chapter 34, uh, verses 4 through 7, let's see if I can turn there real quick. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but let let me read Job chapter 34, verses 4 through 7. Uh, It says this, let us choose, did I write the wrong verse down? Take my word for it. In the book, somewhere in the book of Job. No, I'm kidding. Uh, So actually in the book of Job, and I did, I think I did write write the wrong passage down. But in the book of Job, it says that the morning stars uh, sang out. And it's an indication in that passage, and, and I, can, I can get it for you, but in that passage, uh, I know that many Bible teachers and Bible scholars believe, and I agree with them, uh, that this is uh, an insight that when God created, we don't know this for certain, but when God created um, the cosmos and the stars that we see up in the heavens, 
that he also created the celestial stars because angels are referred to in the Bible on various occasions as stars, and even that they are stars that fell out of heaven. And so when God created the celestial, along, that God may have very well created the cosmos stars and the celestial stars being the angelic realm at the same time. Because even though the creation account is a detailed account, it's not a definitive of every little thing, right? That God, God does it all in one chapter, but there was more going on there. I believe in creation in, in, in seven literal days. I believe exactly the way the Bible says it, but it doesn't tell us exactly when angels were created. But again, we don't actually know how long Adam and Eve lived before they fell in sin, right? Because originally man was meant to live forever. So from the time that Adam and Eve were born, Adam is created by God, then God creates Eve from Adam. We don't know if they lived a hundred years in the garden, and somewhere in that hundred years, Satan rebels and then comes and tempts Eve. So we don't know how that timeline goes. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, but we have an indication that he was created. And if the morning stars sang out at the foundations of the earth being laid, then the angelic realm would have seen some of the days of creation. They would have had a beginning just like everything else. Uh, regardless of when that takes place, as a creative being, Satan has no more power over God than a gnat does. I mean, people, people are impressed. Either, you have two camps. Either people don't believe Satan exists, and then Halloween, they dress up in red, the little pitchforks, right? And that's their impression of Satan. But the majority of Americans don't even believe Satan exists. They believe God exists, but they don't believe Satan. Which actually, that would make God to be a liar because he has a lot to say about Satan in the Bible. So if you say, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Satan, then you actually don't believe in God either. Because you're making God to be a liar. Because God actually says he exists. He actually says he created him right here. So we know that the Lord created him. He has no more power over God than a gnat. Uh, though he's been far more powerful, he's given, Satan has been given far more power than a gnat and far more power than any human being. Matter of fact, far more power than thousands upon thousands of human beings, right? He does have tremendous power, at least for a short time. He has a lifespan within, within time, much longer. Satan's been around uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden much longer lifespan than human beings. We don't fully know why God allows mankind to listen to Satan. But I do think that God gives mankind an opportunity to either listen to Satan, who's a created being, or listen to God, who's the creator. That's called free will, right? God gives a free will choice. Say, if you want to believe a created being who lies a lot, or you want to Believe me, who is the creator who only tells the truth, you have your choice. God gives mankind a choice to choose sin or to choose and or to, to, uh, to choose sin and destruction or to choose grace. He gives man a choice to choose eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. He gives man a choice to ch- uh, choose eternal forgiveness or eternal guilt. A limitless God or a fallen angel. The winning side or the side that is already lost. See, Satan's side has already lost. Not that they will lose, the cross. Thrown out of heaven. You can see all the losses are already there. 
Satan knows this as well as anyone. Satan was created, as was all of creation, though, at the beginning, with no sin, no errors, and no defects. What does it say in the text? You were the seal of perfection. You were perfect in beauty. It has a lot to say about uh, uh, the beauty. Uh, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Created perfectly to begin with, Adam and Eve didn't have any sin to start with. But Satan and Adam and Eve, as well as all the angels, remember Satan, a third of the angels follow, follow him out of heaven, out of heaven uh, with the fall, all created beings were given what? The free will. Well, all created beings with a will, that would be the angelic realm and, and human beings, they were given a free will. And so Satan's free will, uh, he rejected the glory of God for his own glory. Turn with me um, uh, for just a second over to Isaiah chapter 14. This is another passage uh, that tells about Satan and his fall. Look at verse 12. Now, interesting, uh, if if you study Isaiah chapter 14, it starts talking about the king of Babylon and does, Isaiah does the same thing Ezekiel does. Isaiah goes from talking about the king of Babylon, and in the next breath, he's talking about Lucifer, and like, hold, time out, Isaiah, what, what are you doing here? I thought we were talking about the king of Babylon. Ezekiel, I thought we were talking about the king of Tyre. Uh, but look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And again, that morning, uh, dawn of creation, early, early, uh, early in creation, the, the, the sons of the morning, uh, how you have uh, been cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Again, this is the, the influence Satan has on, on the whole world. For you have said in your heart, there's the pride, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. There was other cherubim, there were other angels. Satan wanted to be above all the angelic realm. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol or to hell and the lowest depths of the pit. See, Satan created being, instead of worshiping God, which was his, his responsibility, his designation, he was an anointed cherub. Matter of fact, that's one of uh, the names of Satan uh, that we see here. And you see a couple of his names just in those two texts. Lucifer, son of the morning, anointed cherub. I don't know if you know, but uh, there are more names for Satan in the Bible than, for, than anyone except Jesus. More names for Satan in the Bible. Let me read a few of them to you that you, that you might be familiar with. Roaring lion, ruler of demons. Ruler of this world, Satan. You know the word. You know what their name Satan means? Destruction. That's what it means. Uh, the actual uh, the word you'll actually see, uh, for example, in Revelation nine eleven, it says, uh, and they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, the name is Apollyon, which are synonyms for Satan, destroyer, destruction. Apollyon, anointed cherub, which you see here, Beelzebub, deceiver, devil, dragon, serpent, just a few. 
God of this age, lawless one, liar, murderer, power of darkness, prince of the power of the air. There's just many different names. Now, why would God tell us so much about Satan? Because the whole world's under the sway of Satan. And God is telling us that we have a real enemy. We don't just, it's, it's not human beings that we're going against. We wrestle not against, the Bible says, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness and high places. Uh, Satan's just fine with the world not, believe, not believing he exists. He's okay with the fact they don't think he exists. But he certainly does exist, and he's a created being. Uh, in his past, uh, we know that he was created beautiful. Had musical capabilities in him. Look at what it says. It says, uh, you were um, perfect in all your ways. Uh, let me go back. Uh, uh, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. Doesn't Satan still use music to this day to draw the world? He was created with incredible musical abilities. He was created, he was the seal of perfection. What does that mean? He was the cherry on top, if you will, of creation. It doesn't say that he was more perfect than creation, but the seal of creation, meaning that, you know, is the seal worth more than everything else on the envelope? No, but it's that finishing touch, if you will. That cherry, that little bit of whipped cream. I mean, there was something special about Satan that God had created. He had a special role in the angelic realm, and he threw it all away. That's why when we are puffed up pride, we're we're in the same condemnation. When people throw away the opportunity to be with God, we're following the same path of Satan. His past, he was created perfect, but he rebelled. He lifted himself up. And he was cast out of heaven. What's the present state? Well, now and in the past and in the future, one thing that's constant, Satan has influence. He did in the past at Babel. He did in the past at uh, Tyre. He did in the past with uh, Nero. He did in the past with Adolf Hitler. He does have influence today right now too, doesn't he? He has influence in the past and the present. He influenced Eve in the garden he tempts, he lures, he questions God, he appeals to the flesh of mankind. He always, 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 always minimizes the consequences. Always minimizes the consequences. You can do that, nothing bad will happen. Businessman on a business trip. No one will ever know. Teenager about to do something that uh, no one knows they're doing but them. No one will ever know. It's just you and it, it, just your little thing. No one will ever know. But sin gets exposed, doesn't it? All of those things. He always minimizes the consequences, which is a big, fat lie, isn't it? What did Jesus have to say about Satan and when it comes to lying? And what did he say about people? as their relationship to Satan. I said we have a few other verses that kind of give you an indication of Satan's role and influence in the, earth, uh, the world. Jesus said this, you are of your father the devil. You don't want to hear Jesus tell you this, by the way. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus very harsh 
about Satan. He says, Jesus says, Satan is the father of all lies. Everything that comes out of his mouth, Jesus says, is a lie. Always a lie. I've seen people that lie so much, you know they're lying when their mouth is moving, right? You just know that you can't trust anything they say after a while. You know, I mean, you, you know that they didn't always, they weren't always like that, but they had lied so much that now lies just flow out like they're no big deal. Well, Satan is the father of that. And he has a sway over the whole world, even to this day. His methods haven't changed. Jesus tells people the truth. Satan tells people lies. Jesus brings love. Satan brings hate. Jesus' followers will experience and will display love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Satan, those that are under the power of Satan, will, will, will they exhibit sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, envy, and drunkenness. I didn't come up with that list. It's all the New Testament. Did you make those? No. The apostles wrote that. Satan, well, he is um, offering enslavement to sin. Jesus is offering freedom from sin. And you can kind of, you can just see. And so God gives the whole world the opportunity. Satan had the opportunity to still be walking back and forth in the presence of God. He traded it all in for eternity in hell. But to take a whole lot of people with him. But here's the good news. He actually has no power over us that are saved. None. Zero. He hates this message, by the way. The world doesn't think he exists, but he actually knows what I'm saying exists. And he knows it's true. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? In prayer, in the word, in fellowship, with other believers as you are tonight. Not just by yourself, because we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is the manner of some, but to even do more assembling together as the return of Christ approaches. Why? Because that allows us to kind of lock arms and resist the enemy. But we still have to do it in our personal life and our personal devotions and, and develop a prayer life and learn to get on our knees and pray, learn to sanctify time to open the Word. But if we do spend time with the Lord and we have the power of the Holy Spirit flow in our life, then when Paul writes this in Romans sixteen twenty, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's a pretty powerful statement. Paul had to battle, you know, uh, um, you know, people say the devil made me do it. You can be assured the devil was nowhere near them. The devil is battling people like apostles. The devil, his, you know, he would be after, you know, if you think of the greatest men and women in the history of the world, those Christian men and women, the devil was all over Peter. When he said, I want to sift you as wheat, why? Because Peter actually was a bold follower of Jesus Christ. The devil's not following lukewarm Christian in the middle of America around. If it is, it's a low-level demon, right? Because if the church is so mired in its own flesh, Satan just runs one ad campaign for all them. He's folk, you know where Satan might be? In jail with Pastor Saeed, where there's mighty men of God, the enemy will be there. Everyone else, he just uses kind of an overarching uh, strategy. 
But all of these things that are coming upon the world, uh, Satan has no power over us. Well, what is his future? Well, his future is found in uh, Revelation chapter 20. You realize at the very end of a thousand-year reign of Christ, after Jesus has ruled the world with perfection and justice, do you know the vast majority of the world will actually reject Christ at the end of a thousand-year reign? But after they, after they uh, reject the Lord, it says, And fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's Satan's future. That's where he'll be for all eternity. And even in a, even in a world where people will live close to a thousand years again, Satan will deceive the whole world to actually give up God for Satan again. He does have a high intellect, doesn't he? And he does, un- there's, there's one thing that Satan understands. If you wonder how Hollywood and the business world and governments and how co- complex and they kind of have people wrapped up because Satan is super, super intelligent and he really understands what makes people tick. He knows every weakness about them and he knows our weaknesses, which is why we have to be in the presence of Jesus. Because when we're close to Jesus, we can't be touched. At least not by temptation. He can still buffet us. Paul was buffeted by Satan. We can be buffeted by Satan, but that doesn't mean... He can't make us sin. He can't make us depressed. He can't make us lose our joy. Paul could sing in prison, couldn't he? Nothing, nothing robbed Jesus of joy. Well, let's close with the... Um, the last section here, and it's really not much of, of a study dedicated to the last few verses, but it is worth noting. I'm not going to teach anything about Sidon. Sidon's a sister city, uh, kind of a, a sidekick, if you will, and they, they have the same judgment as Tyre. But verses 25 through 26, as we come to a close here, it says, Thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and I am hallowed in their sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land which I gave my serv- servant Jacob. And they will dwell safely. It's interesting that the Lord closes this uh, section uh, right after Tyre and Sidon and right after talking about Satan's fall. And he talks about that his people eventually will, de- will dwell in safety. But how, how and when will this happen? Notice what it says. It says, when I am hallowed in their sight. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Hallowed be your name. Last thing here, if you're taking notes, the fruit of humility and grace. When we humble ourselves, we can receive God's grace. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. When Israel as a nation state stops depending on itself and looks to God, they'll see salvation. God is their deliverer. But God is our deliverer. You and I cannot have pride in our own abilities. Well, uh, I don't really need to pray because I just need to work harder at work. No. We don't need to work harder at work. And you should work hard at work, but we need to pray harder. And then God will make the other stuff happen. Anything I've ever seen in my life uh, take place of any great value has had to be birthed in prayer. God wants us to humble ourselves and remember that we're coming to him. When we hallow, that's what Jesus said, hallowed be my name. They said, teach us how to what? Pray. 
And Jesus said, well, if you want to learn to pray, you've got to humble yourself before God. Don't take, any, don't take any stock in your abilities. We bring, as we started at the beginning of this study, we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. I take comfort in that now. I used to like, that would, that would scare me. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough for that. I don't even know how to do this from running a church. I don't know how to. And look, after a while, I just say, that doesn't really matter. You just kind of lean on the Lord because he knows everything, doesn't he? And the more humble we become, the more God will be there to help us to dwell safely. Proverbs 18.27 says, For you will save the humble people, but you will bring down haughty looks. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? You'll save the humble people, and you'll bring down haughty looks. I don't know about you, but uh, I think that it's a really good thing to learn from the past, to look at a king of Tyre, to look at nations that have fallen, to look at those that have uh, been lifted up with pride and say, you know what? Ten out of ten times they failed. But ten out of ten times, those that humbled themselves and followed the Lord Jesus were never failed. And ultimately, Satan can never touch us because eventually we'll spend all eternity with the Lord. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, again for this time this evening. Uh, Lord, we know that we have an enemy. We know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, But we know, Jesus, that uh, we are safe in your hands. And Lord, I pray that we would just continue to grow in our faith and uh, that we would lay aside uh, any notion of our own abilities. And and really, uh, as your servant Paul said, we can do all things through Christ, but certainly we can do nothing on our own. Lord, you said in your own word, apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would just uh, be humbled in every aspect of our life, uh, knowing, Jesus, that uh, the very bread of heaven, uh, the word of God, the prayer time that we spend with you, these are the things that uh, give us protection and strength and joy. And Lord, it's not the things of this world that Satan would lie to us and and, uh, try and lure us into things uh, that would uh, have a false sense of satisfaction, Lord, but they bring no peace but they only bring destruction. Even his name, Lord, we know means destruction. So Lord, we're thankful uh, to know the truth that has set us free. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would use us as lights and witnesses the remainder of this week for those that are still in the power of darkness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.